Hi, everyone, and welcome to Workplace 2.0, Tango's podcast about all things corporate real estate. Recently, we held our annual Workplace 2.0 Summit, which was chock full of great roundtable discussions and presentations by industry leaders about the return to the office and hybrid work moving forward. We've packaged some of the best sessions as podcasts for those who are more on the go. And if you're interested in listening or watching additional sessions, check out this episode's show notes for details. Enjoy. Welcome to Portfolio Strategy Roundtable uh, and our guests. We have Francisco uh, Acaba from EY, or Acoba, as he likes to say. <laughs> um, I have Lou from Jackson Cross Partners and Gabe Burke from Accenture. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Thanks. Hello there, Mark. Great to be here. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming. We have a series of topics uh, we want to cover. Uh, in yesterday's roundtables, uh, we had some slides that were placeholders for topics, and we got some feedback uh, from the attendees. It was kind of better to see all of our faces, uh, not not have the screen consumed by just a, a slide that is announcing the topic. So we're going to keep it open like this and, and kind of go through some general questions to start out with. Um, and I kind of want each of your perspective on how you see real estate uh, and the perception and use of it uh, evolving in, in the minds of companies uh, over the last you know year and a half or so since this pandemic uh, hit. So uh, maybe Francisco, uh, since you're front and center for me, why don't you go ahead and kick off? Sure, sure. Glad, glad to. And thanks again for, for uh, the opportunity to participate in the, in the panel today. So, you know, Bart, what, we, what we've certainly seen in the marketplace and on this look over the last few years has been a, 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 a progressive change in how uh, real estate and the, and the workplace has been um, looked at by, by corporations, right? So historically, there's certainly the, the, the overall or overwhelming perception around it's a cost, it's a cost of doing business. You know, we, we, it's, a, it's necessary to incur these costs to, to deliver our services to our clients, right? Um, with the push over the last few years towards employee experience and uh, workplace experience and being able to enhance uh, that aspect of, a, of a employee life, um, we, we had been seeing a change, and this is post a pre-pandemic, certainly. Over the last year, or more, more than a year now, as we've gone through COVID-19, uh, I think that the, the thoughts around the workplace and the importance of how the workplace will be used going forward, uh, it's, only, it's only evolved in a, in a good direction, right? In the sense that the companies are really critically looking at, at you know, how should we be leveraging the workplace environment going forward? Um, you know, what when we talk about workplace, are we just talking about the office? Are we talking about the home environment where employees uh, have been working for the past 15 months, third places, right, in the portfolio? So thinking about all these parts and pieces, I think that the, the perspective is that um, the work, the concept of the workplace has, has evolved. Uh, it'll be used more for collaboration than for than individual work, likely. Um, although I, I will say that you know, in the last couple of months, we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm, um, you know, from uh, corporations around trying to get people back to the office. So, so we'll see how that all plays out, right? I think there's a little bit of push and pull going on in the marketplace right now. Absolutely, Lou. Well, as we've discussed, Bart, uh, a couple of occasions, I think the uh, 
move towards lease accounting, ASC 842, and the pandemic created a bookend of visibility uh, of real estate. Uh, as Francisco said, it had always kind of been a little bit of a cost of doing business, necessary evil uh, management that way. But lease accounting brought it front and center from an economic mm -hmm. standpoint. People in the finance suite and the accounting suites uh, who hadn't really paid attention, as much attention to some of the decisioning that was going on on real estate, lease versus own, or how long a lease term or how much capital you put into situation, all of a sudden had visibility and it, it started to create some change. And then the pandemic and now returning from the pandemic really started to put much more uh, senior level focus on workplace employer uh, or employee uh, retention, uh, employee employee attraction. So I think more than anything over the last year and a half, we've seen an elevation in concern or attention to real estate occupancy workplace that, uh, that frankly for a number of years before just kind of bumbled along without that much attention and just did, you know, the functional service. Absolutely. How about Gabe? How about you? Well, I agree with my fellow panelists. There is certainly a heightened uh, focus on real estate. What I've watched as this pandemic has played out is that a cultural battle has emerged. And it's, it's been quite interesting to watch as it goes on as high profile companies have really taken different positions on remote and hybrid work, significantly different positions, which you did not see before the pandemic. So as some examples, um, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan have both said they want people back in the office. Um, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Reed Hastings has said he's focused on the office. <clears throat> on the other side of the spectrum, you have Twitter, uh, Slack, Instacart, are, are going the other direction saying we we want to let people work remotely. Google, Apple, Facebook, I think are hedging their bet. They're uh, going with a partial uh, remote or hybrid work and kind of feeling their way through it. But it's remarkable to watch because if you go pre-pandemic, you did not see nearly as much of a divide in the way companies were thinking, and you didn't see anywhere near the debate, the public debate that is going on between these CEOs. I mean, it's, it's you know, having been in corporate real estate for almost 25 years, it's amazing to pick up a newspaper and read CEOs of these big companies talking about their workplace strategy. You just didn't see that before. Yeah. And I, I, am, <laughs> I am really just on the edge of my seat to see where some of this goes because, and I read in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, Jamie Dimon is the CEO of JP Morgan. And he said, quote, people are coming back to the office. They're going to be happy with it. Yes, they have to commute. We know people don't like commuting, but so what? Now that's a direct quote from him. And on the other side, you have Twitter saying, hey, you could, we're gonna let you work remotely um, and we're gonna give you the freedom that you want. And I, I can't sit here and tell you I know where it goes, but it's certainly interesting to watch. And it comes back to the comments already made by Francisco and Lou is that everybody is so focused on workplace strategy right now. It is more important than it's ever been. And it makes me a little nervous, but it's also 
quite interesting. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah, it's, it's exciting uh, to say the least. And I apologize, uh, we skipped the whole introduction round because I usually have a slide with your pictures that use <laughs> me. So um, I know you all so well that uh, maybe that's why it slipped my mind as well. So let's just do a quick round real quick. Uh, you know, a little bit about your organization background and role. Uh, Francisco, why don't, you, why don't you go first? Uh, sure, sure, happy to. So um, Francisco Acoba, a partner with EY based in New York. Um, I'm part of the, the, the corporate real estate consulting practice uh, at the firm. Um, been working in the corporate real estate uh, advisory space now for the past 24, 25 years uh, in all aspects of, of um, corporate real estate restructuring, org design, performance management, outsourcing, a lot of work in the, in the workplace and portfolio uh, arena as well. And, and certainly then um, work in the real estate technology space, uh, everything from IT strategy to selection to um, to uh, implementation of, of large systems. So glad to be with you guys today. Welcome. Uh, Lou? Yeah, I'm Lou Battelise, a partner here at Jackson Cross Partners. We're a real estate service company based outside of Philadelphia, but do global work. Uh, much of it in the data management, data preparation, lease administration, lease accounting uh, in our advisory practice. And we also have a corporate strategies transaction management platform. Uh, so we have been in almost our 20 years in business, uh, we've been focused on corporate portfolio strategy and management. Absolutely, and Gabe. Yes, I am a newly minted member of Accenture's Real Estate and Workplace Solutions team. Uh, prior to, I sit in Silicon Valley, um, but prior to that, I spent 23 years with Cushman and Wakefield and, pre, and then Collier's running uh, portfolio optimization, portfolio strategy, and global transaction management for a variety of clients, mostly high tech. Awesome. So uh, some very bright minds in the corporate real estate space. So thank you, uh, gentlemen. I want to circle back to a, a point uh, Gabe mentioned that, that kind of lines with some of the questions we talked about prior was uh, kind of what is the, uh, where does where does real estate fit on the, the C-suite agenda, uh, if you will? I heard an interesting comment in a round table yesterday um, where a partner from PwC's practice had mentioned that um, she's involved in some board discussions where actually the board above the C-suite uh, is getting engaged in the conversation because mm -hmm. of the fear of uh, turnover and other types of things for the same reasons that Gabe mentioned about, you know, where you pick uh, your battles in, in the or spot in the hybrid workplace. So where does it fit on the C-suite agenda? And is there any dependency to industry or whatnot, skill sets like high tech and things like that uh, in the race for talent and other types of things? So uh, I'll go round robin here. We won't always go in the same order. So uh, Lou, why don't, you, why don't you jump on that one? I think it's almost like a newly minted awareness, as I was saying earlier. Uh, I think it is important to the C-suite. Uh, and because it is so front of mind right now about uh, the, the description Gabe gave, where there's a lot of different opinion as to whether you're in the office or at home or in some hybrid situation, I think the senior management is more engaged in that, both from a personal standpoint uh, and from a philosophical standpoint, right, of what they want the company to look like. And, and the interesting thing is that it went from a highly tactical business uh, management approach 
to now a strategic, and it kind of skipped over everything in the middle to get to, to, to this. And I think one of the things that we've seen with a few clients is uh, a little bit of frustration and awareness that, that, that resembled what we saw when people first started to try to build data for 842, where, they, where people were surprised that the real estate department's lease admin system couldn't be immediately transferred for accounting, that they had never integrated the financial pieces of it. And I think that um, what we're seeing in a couple situations is a frustration that there isn't more data, there isn't more of a clear path as to how to decide this, and frankly, the complexity of all of the factors that uh, that senior managers a lot of times aren't used to dealing with uh, in a deep, detailed type of way. Uh, so I think that there's been a little bit of a, again, heightened awareness and, a, and, and more a little bit of frustration that this isn't an easy fix. Francisco, anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I think it brings up a lot of good points. I mean, I, I, I would say that uh, if you think about uh, C-suite discussions around, around corporate real estate in the workplace, I, I would very easily say that in the last year, I've had more discussions uh, with C-suite executives around real estate and the workplace than in the past 10 years. Um, there's no, no, no doubt about it. Uh, it's, it's on the agenda. Um, and, you know, part of it also, it's you know, because, as Lou said, they're being asked about this externally, uh, internally and externally. Right? The board's asking, external media is asking them about how, how, how are you thinking about return to office? What's your workplace strategy going to be going forward? These are not questions that, they, that some of these executives received before. Right. Um, so I think overall, I mean, you know, it's a good thing for corporate real estate and, and, and workplace because it, it does elevate uh, the discussion um, and the importance of, of being able to, to provide for an effective uh, workplace experience feeds right into the employee experience and HR uh, and talent organizations within every major company today uh, are all about elevating the, the employee experience for their um, for their for their folks from the day that they're onboarded all the way through to whenever they leave the organization they want them you know, to, to optimize that that experience so that they become part of that you know lifelong member membership in the in the company and and so forth right so um, so real estate and workplace has a big role to play in that and I think that it this is a, an opportunity that should, should take advantage of it, right? Um, you know, take, yeah. get, your, get your seat at the table now while you can. Well, it's interesting and, you know, interested in your perspective on this, Gabe, but what we've seen is, is kind of a trickle-down effect of what you guys are saying. So the C-suite is being asked externally certain questions. They're looking internally, asking those same questions of real estate and workplace leaders who say, I don't have an answer to that because we've never had the ability to invest in the systems to provide those types of answers, even though maybe I've wanted that for a long time. So are you seeing that at all, Gabe, where, um, you know, there's now a, a, a greater appetite and willingness to invest uh, given what we're seeing? Well, there's no question there's a greater willingness to invest, but I think that the C-suite is feeling a bit anxious right now, Bart. Um, they all have some very important decisions to make about how they're gonna roll out this workplace strategy. And no one really knows exactly what to do, but they do know 
that whatever policy policies they implement will have an impact on attraction and retention of talent. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 almost funny to watch because the the C-suite employee relationship is almost like parent-child in a way. They have to lay out some rules and guidelines, but at the same time, they don't want to make their employees upset or angry. Now, I have young children, and if my son needs a bath but wants to first play with his train set, I have a decision to make. Do I want to deal with the tantrum that might ensue if I don't let him play with his train set? Now, you saw Apple this week came out and said, or last week, I think Tim Cook made the announcement, hey, we're going to three days a week. It's going to be Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and that's the deal. Well, what happened? Immediately, a significant group of employees wrote an open letter complaining that he wasn't respecting their needs and desires for hybrid and remote work. So I think all these CEOs are thinking, well, you know, what what do we do here? How, How what can we implement without upsetting people, but that will also create the right environment where people can collaborate and ideate and be productive and and no one knows the answer to that but i think that's what's on their mind right now is like to what extent what do we think is best that's the first question and then to what extent can we implement it without causing internal strife with our employee base absolutely um i think uh, you know one of the other elements we've talked about this the last two days is the fact that you know anybody who tells you what hybrid means uh, before they go back to the office is really not being straightforward because we don't know. You may pick uh, a line in the sand uh, like you guys are talking about, but until you go back and start living that dynamic environment of people in and out, um, we don't know what it is. And I want to translate that to you know the topic at hand, which is portfolio strategy. Um, there's a short-term lens and there's a longer-term lens. Uh, On the short-term side of things, there's a reality of leases coming up and churning for renewal, decisions that need to be made in a very uncertain environment, um, and negotiating uh, those. And then there's the longer term when you have a better understanding of what work looks like so you can place those longer-term bets, you know, go from downtown CBD strategy to hub and spoke or whatever it it may be. So let's start with the short-term. And Lou, I'm going to ask you this question. You know, how are companies dealing with the short-term portfolio decisions um, that are now on their laps or coming up in the next uh, three, six, 12 months in this climate? Yeah, I think struggling is probably the best uh, one word answer with, because uh, as we've talked about, I think there is a gap between what we want to do and what we're able to do. I think that reality that of, of lease obligations, commitments to space, uh, the investment to reconfigure the space, those type of things in large companies are significant. And that in the short run, uh, and we talked about this in some of the other discussions, that, you know, there's only so much you can do within your options and with your landlord, but there is more of, People are reluctant to make any type of commitment, even mid-range commitments, uh, until that decision about how many people are coming, how often are they coming, how do we need to set this up physically. So um, what we have seen in the short run is people buying time. We're trying to work with landlords to get short-term extensions. Don't Don't put a gun to my head today, right? If I have a notice provision that's 12 months out, 
I'd like to stay. I don't know what it's going to look like. Can we move the notice date? Or can we give you a six month or 12 month extension so that it's not facing us down the, you know, right down the chute and we can make some decisions. So I think it is, uh, it, it's not very strategic right now because there are so many unanswered questions. Francisco? Yeah, no, and I, I, I would echo what Lewis was saying. So it's, it's, it's not very strategic, but I think that's partially by design. Right, because they're 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 wanting to take that tactical look right now until they can figure out what what they're going to do later on. And and Bart, you mentioned the topic of hybrid work and the fact that you know everybody has a different definition for that. We don't really know exactly what that means yet in many cases. And I would I would call out I think the important distinction between hybrid work, but also hybrid workplace, right, to support that hybrid work, which is as you said a bit ambiguous right now. Um, we have been, as we talk to clients, you know, we have been supporting the concept of, of don't make um, major capital investment decisions right now regarding the workplace. You know, some organizations are say, well, do we have to, you know, redesign the workplace and, and run all these ma massive capital projects, is get ready for people to come back, and and you know they don't, but yet they admit, well, we don't exactly know how we're going to be using the workplace when people get back to the office. How often are people going to be here? What's the workplace purpose going to be going forward? Um, you know, what do we need to accommodate in the workplace you know, in, in the future? So figuring that out is important. Um, and that's going to take a little bit of time, right? So, you know, taking the next six, nine, 12 months, whatever it is, to figure out how is your organization going to use the workplace going forward is very important. And it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. It's going to be different for for most organizations, there may be, end up being some trends and similarities across uh, industries or sectors, but but it's going to be very much a, a company by company situation given culture and and protocols and whatnot. Um, one of the things that we have been suggesting to organizations is take this time to to talk about you know investment in technologies, deploy some of the technologies that are now available to help you track and monitor how. The workplace is being used. What activities are happening in the workplace? What's 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 the actual use of space? Um, what portions of your floor plate are being more heavily used than others? Right to to talk about uh, use patterns. Then leverage that information to make your decisions around the portfolio long term in twelve or twenty four months or whatever that might be, depending on on the on when decisions need to be made. But right now is certainly it would be probably not the right time to make some of these you know big expensive capital decisions because you know you don't have all the data absolutely gabe anything to add to that yeah that's right. i think it's in and out can you hear me at all yeah it's just in and out a little bit all right well why don't you let's move on to somebody else yeah yeah come back to me well, lou, yeah lou let me ask you um we've talked about this before and it kind of relates to this concept at least in the short term of, of a term you've used before, which is kind of a flexibility premium. So what, where are our tenants needing to give, if you will, uh, or landlords in the short term uh, as, uh, you know, the unknown and unwillingness not, or, or lack thereof to uh, tie up long-term decisions? Yeah, the, the flexibility premium, as we've talked before, is usually in the, um, in the concept of the entire portfolio. Right. And, and I think that's one thing that companies 
can do to stratify the portfolio. You can't attack everything right now, given the, the short-term uh, demands, but you can start to look at our core properties, our core locations, our strategic, our transitional, and those things that you may be able to gain some efficiencies with. The, the, so from the standpoint of most companies, particularly in the office arena, uh, are usually in three to five year cycles with their leases. And so uh, it, there's, it's, it's not going to be uh, too painful uh, to try to realign the space needs with the space that you have. Uh, but in the, so, so where they have constantly renewed on short term, they're now in a situation where that may benefit them uh, to that. But overall, on the long-term play, particularly with the capital that's going to need to be invested as they reposition the workplace, uh, I think that it would serve them well to look at staggering those terms, and that's where they can work with the landlords, right? The landlords, the last thing the landlords want is a lot of six-month or one 12-year, you know, short-term tenants, and someone wakes up one day and 30% of their building is vacant because company consolidated. So they're going to have to find some middle ground in this. And as we've spoken before, I think the larger, better healed, better finance landlords are, are usually doing this with an open hand to the big companies, uh, the, the, the private investors, smaller landlords, uh, folks that have a pressure in other areas like retail or other parts of their business. Uh, they're not as, they can't be as flexible uh, because of the pressure. Uh, so, so I think that every situation is a little bit different depending on who the, who the parties are. But, but overall, I think most people are on the occupier side are, are trying to buy time. Well, let, let's talk about that. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, how's my sound now? That's Good. better. <laughs> okay. Welcome <laughs> back. Um, yeah, just to your question, Bart, about like how are companies reacting to all this? To me, they are reacting to, they reacted to the pandemic the same way they did <clears throat> previous recessions, even though this wasn't a recession, just like in the early 90s or the dot-com bust or the recession of 08 and 09, they react by putting big plans on hold and simply you know, biding their time and renewing leases on a short-term basis as Francisco and Lou have already stated. So that's that's how I would describe the reaction there. And then on, um, but I, you know, I like Francisco's comment about hybrid work and, and Lou said it as well as, you know, you kind of right now, you can't make big decisions. You kind of have to feel your way through it because we don't know where this is headed. And I know a lot of people are kind of um, very enthusiastic about hybrid and remote work, but I personally, and I know this sounds like blasphemy to say this part, but I'm not totally convinced that we're going to have a major increase in hybrid work. And the reason I say that, I know it sounds crazy to say it right now, Although the concept of hybrid work is very popular, living with it is quite another story. And simply put, many people don't want to share their desks. And, you know, this is something that CFOs have long been interested in. They've seen the low utilization rates. Um, they've seen the potential cost savings. But it really hasn't become a major standard because, because of so much pushback from employees. It's not that they mind coming in three days a week, but they do mind sharing a desk. Now in the employee's version of Shangri-La, they would come in three days a week and have their own desk, but it's hard to imagine leadership would tolerate 
the cost of that, you know, you're going to have utilization rates below 40%. So I think if people want hybrid work, they're probably going to have to share a desk. And that's exactly what Twitter announced. Um, they have already come out and said that we're not doing assigned seating anymore. We're going to have social spaces and we're going to have focus spaces and that's what's going to be it. But I think some employees might hate that. So I don't know where hybrid work is going, but back to the, the comments from my fellow panelists, I think feeling your way through this, doing trial runs, test cases, that's the strategy right now. Gauge the reaction from your people and the productivity as you go. Absolutely. So back to the dynamic uh, between landlord and the tenant. Um, you know, often the landlords, depending on the situation and the tenant, um, you know, one or the other is kind of in the driver's seat, if you will. Um, how has the pandemic affected that dynamic between the two? And have you seen that shift as we're starting to get closer to returning to the office? So anybody who wants to jump in on that one. All right, I'll, there was a long enough pause there. I'll jump in. <laughs> jump in. Um, there's no question that we are shifting to more of a tenant's market. Well, it, let me caveat that. It really depends on what space you're in. If you're in the life science space and you're a landlord, okay, you are Frank Sinatra sitting on a rainbow with the world on a string right now, okay? Um, but if you're in office space or retail, it's a bit more precarious simply because we are seem to be headed in a direction where we might use less of that type of space. We don't know yet, but it, it feels like that. And so I think landlords in those with that product type are, are feeling a bit nervous. And um, we, you know, here in Silicon Valley, the first six months of the pandemic, you didn't see any change. There was a lot of resiliency. But if you look at the last quarter or two, you started to see asking rates slip a bit. You started to see vacancy rates creep up a bit. I don't think it's um, a major difference at this point, but I think that the, 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 there is a difference in negotiation now compared with February of 2020. In, in February, the landlords were in total control. Now I think the tenants have, have taken back some of that. Anything to add, Lou or Francisco? I would I would agree with Gabe. I think that there is uh, it it feels like a tenant market is coming. Uh, the uh, landlord investment ownership of uh, particularly office buildings, particularly in in major markets, big CBD buildings, uh, is is a long term proposition. And for the last eight years, nine years, we've seen an escalating market, right? Demand for space. Uh, rents increasing, uh, people investing in uh, unique setups, uh, the cost to fit out, which you know landlords would used to used to peg at thirty or forty dollars a square foot for conventional office, you know is north of a hundred hundred twenty dollars a foot that people were spending, uh, and they were getting corresponding rents to that, and they were getting good returns, uh, certainly compared to industrial or or single tenant net lease cap rates office uh, investment was doing pretty well. Uh, everything that we're dealing with now is contrary to long-term stability. Uh, mm -hmm. And depending on the asset, depending on where you are in the market, 
uh, you're either going to be the, the asset that people are attracted to, or you're going to be scrambling for a, di a, a dwindling size demand. Uh, so I do, it does feel that way, but in the short run, the, the, the tenants don't, the, the market hasn't adjusted to a short-term tenant view. So that you will see some landlords digging in hard. Yeah, I'll let you cut your space back, but I need a five-year commitment or I need a, a, you know, some other kind of relief in the deal. Uh, so it, it is going to be a little bit more arm's length, uh, but I, I, I would agree that I think the tenant uh, uncertainty is, is going to give them a little bit more flexibility in the negotiations. Just one quick point dovetailing off of Lou said, the short-term leases will cause a significant change in the capital contribution that tenants receive from landlords. Landlords show up to negotiate, or excuse me, the tenant shows up and says, this is our wish list. The, the contribution from the landlord is directly tied to the length of the lease. Shorter leases means less capital yeah. contribution. So that will be a change. Yeah. And, you know, just one other point to add to that that whole discussion. And, and again, in, as I was saying, in major markets, you know, there's still there's still a lot of activity and investment going on, right? And you know, there's big deliveries that are in, in the in the coming years, and even more that are being announced for five and six, seven years out. And in in New, in New York alone, I mean, it's probably tens of millions of square feet that's announced, right? That the buildings are they're they're coming on, on coming to, coming to be delivered in 25, 26, 27. So um, there is there's that perspective from the the owner investor side right that that the the assets will will survive and will will push through this um although we are seeing that those buildings are being announced as smarter buildings right um you know uh, very much ener energy sustain and sustainable designs right um so they're beginning to really market and think about all those programs that are again top of mind for executives right, as they think about you know you know where do they want to you know place their new their new headquarters or their new operation um that's uh that's part of the equation now yeah one last uh kind of question off this discussion on the short-term side of things um a lot of the options that are come up for renewal are forcing renegotiations because they aren't a fit anymore for the reality of what was previously assumed would occur so, lou what what has that done to the amount of negotiations uh, at renewal? Um, I assume it's uh, been a big uptick uh, because you know likely those options maybe aren't a good fit anymore. Yeah, we 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 spoke of this on the session the other day, uh, and it is most of the options is to use the Wall Street term are underwater <laughs> uh, because they're they don't align with the need. Uh, they certainly do not align with the term uh, that a lot of companies are looking for, and the square footage doesn't match up one way or the other. Uh, so there will be a little bit of a game of chicken. Once the option notice period lapses, now it's, uh, it's a one-on-one -on -one negotiation. And if you have a you know, high-value building where you can put replacement tenants in, uh, the, the, the tenant is at a significant disadvantage, particularly if they're looking for some short-term flexibility. The cost of relocation uh, is significant and uh, to pick up and move to another building. And to Francisco's point and to Gabe's point, the, you're not going to get the TI allowance 
in a short-term deal. So you almost have to recognize that what you're going to see, I think in my opinion, is once the options um, lapse, you will see if people have to stay for the reasons we've talked about. Uh, you'll see a higher premium on the rent uh, that'll be inverse to the term. Uh, you could see 125, 150% rent for a two-year renewal. And you could see more of a market rent for a five-year deal, and you might get something that's 25% below market for a 10-year deal. But I think you could see that kind of variability. Again, all of it's subject to the market and the building and the, and the parties. Absolutely. Yeah, just one other comment on that part. Um, one thing to watch for with these option renewals is if we wind up to what extent we wind up with some form of arbitration or even legal disputes, there are many options and leases that are done at what's called fair market value. And the lease itself has a mechanism. If the tenant landlord can't agree, the lease will have a specific mechanism for determining fair market value. It's usually some form of baseball arbitration. Um, and I think it, it could be quite common for tenants and landlords to disagree on what that value is. I don't know, but it's something to watch for. And will we see more arbitrations and disputes over what fair market value is? Will we see that happen more? A great point. Okay, let's shift to the longer term. Um, and this is again going to be a hard question to answer, but I'll still uh, ask it um, because we don't know what hybrid work is. Um, there's been a lot of talk of different types of models that people may go to hub and spoke, um, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Are you seeing any type of uh, prevalence in a particular strategy? And is that varying by industry or anything like that as far as what some of the longer term approaches may be? Obviously, um, cost reduction is, is always in the forefront uh, of looking at ways to reduce occupancy costs, uh, but without knowing exactly how much space you need and how it'll be used, it's a, it's a tough uh, thing to do. But what are some of the longer term considerations you're seeing? So uh, I don't even want to kick that one off. Uh, so I think it's a little early to see if there's any necessarily certainly trends in execution, right? Uh, but from the perspective of what are people thinking about, um, certainly to your point, the, the, the hub and spoke concept is, is there, especially around trying to look at opportunities to help minimize some of that commute time, provide spaces that are, you know, sort of, you have your hub in the, in the center city and then your, your spokes that are out maybe in, in the places where, you know, people live that you can, you can help with their, with their work-life balance. Um, a lot of organizations are m more aggressively looking at the opportunities relative to serviced offices, right, to see how they can leverage that. Now, again, it goes back to the flexibility premium, right, that, 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 that we talked about before, but that may be something that organizations are, are willing to pay, right, for certain portions of their portfolio where that makes sense. Uh, you know, that might be the appropriate, the appropriate answer. So I think, you know, it's a little early to, to say that there are any trends and, again, what's happening out there. But as far as what are people looking at, um, I think those are certainly two of the things that are, are certainly top of mind right now. I, I would add that I, it, it, it's going to vary, obviously. 
because of the different workforces, right? There's going to there's a there's a huge part of this is a labor component, the attraction and retention of 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 the talent. Uh, but I think the other thing is what's getting the headlines uh, is our major installations, right? Uh, a million feet in New York or, or half a million square feet in, in San Francisco or in Silicon Valley. Uh, the market and the job of the CRE team is much more granular than that. And what you decide at the headquarters from a labor uh, relations standpoint may have to get carried through to regional or, or, or other types of locations. And I don't think that a lot of thought has gone into that yet. I again, what's leading here is where's the pain? And the pain is the CEOs are being asked, what are you going to do about all the people in Manhattan? Or what are you going to do with the, with the people in Austin? And uh, but when the dust settles and they make some decisions on how they're going to approach those places, then what's left for the CRE team is going to be to try to rationalize that across a much broader portfolio, which in a lot of cases also includes places outside the United States. Uh, so it is uh, long term, this complexity is, is, is only going to get bigger and uh, more challenging. Uh, right now, it's again, it's in the headlines and it's in the C-suite. But when the final, when someone makes a final decision on where they want people to work and how often they want them to be in an office, someone's going to have to execute that through the entire portfolio. Absolutely, and you know, the talent side is a really interesting variable in this. Um, you know, as Gabe, you were mentioning some of the large Wall Street firms. Um, and potentially what we're seeing in the tech sector are on opposite ends as far as uh, people coming into an office, yet they're recruiting from often the same top schools uh, that they're, you know, from a talent perspective. So then we also have the news of the mass exodus of people moving out of New York City or out of San Francisco to different areas of the country with lower cost and, and maybe different lifestyle that they were looking to have. Uh, how much of that do you think is is media hype? How much are you really seeing uh, in these key markets? You know, Francisco in New York, Gabe in uh, um, San Francisco, and then uh, Lou, you on the East Coast as well. Yeah, I'll start that one off. That that's a such an interesting question because what you see in the headlines, it's never you know I don't find newspaper headlines to be false, but they can leave you with the wrong impression sometimes. And during the pandemic, there was a ton of reporting about companies that were the way most uh, reporters put it was moving out of the Bay Area, like HPE, Oracle, Uber, um, Airbnb, um, you know, or, or maybe downsizing their operations here. Salesforce and Yelp made some big moves as well. The way a lot of it was reported was, you know, HPE leaves Silicon Valley. Oracle leaves Silicon Valley. Well, that is not going to happen. Now, HPE and Oracle may have a new home base, but they still have major operations here. And it will remain that way. And another um, facet of that was um, where people decided to live. 
And there was another narrative running through the media, at least in the Bay Area. I think New York and Silicon Valley were quite similar, like everyone's leaving. Everyone's leaving Silicon Valley. They can all work remotely. They're going to go anywhere. And, and we did see some of that. But as things played out, we also saw that the, the, the numbers didn't quite bear out that narrative and that it really wasn't an exodus. Um, and I think maybe in certain parts of Manhattan, and I spoke to someone the other day who lives on the Upper West Side and said, you know, he hadn't seen that big of a change where he lives. So I think that the pandemic uh, continued some trends that were there, maybe it increased them slightly, but I think uh, that what was reported was exaggerated. Yeah, I, 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 I would agree with, with, uh, with Gabe's sentiment there. I mean, if you think about New York, yes, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a, a you know, a, a reported exodus, quote unquote, right, of, of several hundred thousand re residents, right, you know, 500,000 or whatever it was. But what didn't get reported as, as, uh, as clearly afterward was, you know, within the last six months already, you know, rents have already started to go back up because people are coming back, right? So it's the classic supply demand. You know, people saw the opportunity to come back in when things were a little bit cheaper. So a lot of people came back, right? Came in and that, but that doesn't really get reported, right? It's just the people who are leaving that get that gets reported every day. But but rents are already going back up, for, you know, even on and on the you know in the in the own market in New York City as well. You know, prices are are already going back up, right? So it's a, it's a sign that you know that hopefully the recovery is. Is, uh, is is on its way, and and uh, that the you know the the, the signs, the the thoughts that New York City and London and other places are, will be dead, I think, is uh, probably a little bit overhyped. I think I would add just anecdotally, you know, the mega trend, which is the twenty somethings and thirty somethings uh, who are sought after for hiring, still seem to prefer living in the urban centers. They want to be in the cities, 24-hour cities. That's where they want to be, and that's ideally where they want to work. And, and so business could follow them there. And, and uh, on a personal note, having a 27-year-old who spent a year living back in the suburbs uh, while his business was shut down, uh, couldn't wait to get out and get back <laughs> to New York or L.A. or wherever they were going. So uh, I think that uh, the businesses will go where the talent yeah. is. And if that's the, your demographic of what you're trying to hire, they, I, I don't think anything that has changed in the last year that all of a sudden those people, I don't want to call them kids, but those professionals don't, they don't want to be on the suburban campus uh, uh, walking yeah. the dog. I just yeah. want to make another similar comment about a trend that I think might've been exaggerated and that was around workplace and I'll just be quick, but there was a lot of talk about how we were going to have the six foot office and everything was going to be spread out and we we're going to have these wide offices. And I think that I'm not going to say it's gone away, but I think that has turned out to perhaps not quite be true. And I know Apple ran a survey of their employees a few months ago and they said, Hey, we either want to come back to the office we knew or not at all. So I think people, the employees want, an office that isn't necessarily spread out, so to speak. So I just wanted to mention that was another trend that didn't yeah, quite absolutely. play out the way we thought. Vaccinations picked up, cases and hospitalizations went down. Um, I think it's accelerated a lot of the time frames for when people were thinking going back, and then a lot of the same the dynamics that, that you're talking about, Gabe. Um, 
to wrap up here, I just, um, you know, there's too many unknowns about where work is going for every individual company, but that doesn't mean you sit on your hands. You need to plan out scenario plan, come up with different options of what you might do and kind of game theory it out, if you will. What are some of the frameworks or processes that you're taking your clients through to get them to explore uh, those different scenarios and options and then the ramifications of them on their business? Uh, well, happy to kick that off. So we're going back, I think here, the way we're, we're, we're thinking about this with clients is really going back to the, going back to the basics and understanding, again, number one, understanding the talent, right? And, you know, and how that talent is going to operate in the new, in the new workplace. Uh, you do have to have some sense of, of to what extent are they going to leverage this hybrid model going forward? You have, you have to, begin to make some assumptions around, you know, run some scenarios, do scenario planning. Um, so you have to understand the talent and then understand specifically also what activities are likely to really take place in the, in the office tomorrow versus, you know, in, in the past. Right. So, you know, there's, there's a, there's a tendency right now to think that it's good. There's going to be more push towards, you know, collaboration and, specific defined events and so forth that would have occurred in the office, training, other things, and certain things that are more individually focused, um, you know, will heads down work, will continue to be done at home, avoid the commute and so, so forth and so on. But even it's not even that clear cut, right? Because, you know, you, I think you have individuals where um, they would say to you that, the, that they're completely tired of working remotely and they want to be in, back in the office. Or in many cases, they also they don't have the environment uh, at home to be able to, wherever they're living, to have an effective workplace, um, you know, environment. Right? Maybe they have roommates, or they have they don't have a proper office. It's not ergonomic. They're working at a kitchen table. You know, you can't do that for you know for forever. People have made it work over the last fifteen months, but is that sustainable? And you know, we've already heard stories around you know, a, a productivity drop that some companies that have been running surveys and doing some analyses have come back and said, well, you know, yeah, we were, we were as productive as we were, we could have been for a while, but now a year later, it's actually, we're beginning to see some drop in productivity. Um, you know, there's some, a little bit of, maybe there's some complacency, distraction. Um, so lots of factors to take into account. So uh, being able to run the scenarios and the analytics it's not just about the space, it's about the talent, the people, the work, uh, all of that together. So it's a much more complex equation than just running a, you know, it's not just a, how many square feet do you need per person and what's the hoteling right. ratio, right? That's just, that's just the beginning. Yeah, and I know, Lou, you talk about kind of core assets and other stuff. So what's the framework that you kind of work with clients? I, I think and this it, it put a plug in for the session we're doing at two o'clock with Zach Forrest and I. But I think the what we're talking about is, is, is getting the band back together. Right? When we did the run up to lease accounting, we cut most companies, most clients built cross-functional teams to do that. Right. And, and it was interesting in the early years of those projects, People who had both all worked for the company for 10 plus years, 20 years, were introducing themselves. People from accounting and from real estate and from procurement, uh, from legal, uh, from environmental health safety. So the, the concept of, of taking a holistic view 
and using this as a, as a jumping off point to really take a, a center of excellence approach and to get people charged with workplace and portfolio management, getting a cross-functional team together that's permanent. And so when you make and solve for the major installations, the strategic and the core assets, then you have a framework for how you carry that through the whole portfolio. And again, it's, it, it is, it, it's not a huge investment in manpower. It is a realignment of manpower, but it also has to do with organizational authority and how people report. Because in a lot of cases, CRE as a service organization can be optional depending on how a company, you know, how a company designates who reports to whom. Uh, so, so we're trying to uh, convey, again, in the middle of an emergency, but we're trying to convey taking a more holistic view and using this as a great example of the benefits that are out there for that. That's an interesting point, Lou, about the, how the CRE reports. And it's a good point, like some CRE organizations run as a center of excellence. Right. And uh, really serve who they refer to as the customer, the employees. And that has to do with uh, the power structure within the organization of the employees. I think um, a key element here, Francisco touched on it, is assessing the way people want to work rather than just defining mm -hmm. the office and saying this is how you will work, but understanding how they work best. Now, as an example, many people in the consulting world are loving all these virtual meetings because they get to stay home and, you know, they don't have to travel. Well, Francesco, when I talked to you about six months ago, you said, hey, man, I'm a road warrior. I want to get back on the road. <laughs> and uh, I yeah. love that. But it's a good <laughs> example of how, you know, differing people can feel. And I think putting people in uh, the environment in which they're comfortable is probably a great way to increase productivity. And I think that assessment is going to be yeah. critical. Yeah, I think it's been said a little bit differently uh, in several of the sessions is it's more about purpose. So what am I wanting to do? And I'll pick space based on that. So instead of the other way around is no matter what my purpose is, I'm going to go into the office. So if I want to collaborate, if I want to do heads down individual focus work, if I want to do other types of things, I have the flexibility to pick different spaces, whether that's at home, co-working or, uh, you know, third place, whatever you want to call it, or uh, in company facilities uh, as well. So that uh, concludes our time. I really want to uh, thank uh, Francisco, Lou, and Gabe. Uh, fantastic discussion. Uh, very interesting. A lot to come in this area. Um, so I'm sure you'll all be very busy uh, with your clients uh, planning out the future. Uh, but thanks for joining Workplace 2.0. We do have a, another session here starting in about four minutes. And as Lou mentioned, uh, that's around advancing real estate through the concept of the center of excellence. So we're looking forward to Jackson Cross's presentation on that in just a few. So thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for listening to this session from Tango's Workplace 2.0 Summit. For more sessions from the summit, check out the show notes for details.